Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. We'll go ahead and, and pray and we will um, we'll jump into it. So, uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We pray now that as we consider uh, this passage here in Mark 7, um, I just pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you would illumine our hearts to what you are wanting to communicate through it uh, to our hearts today. So I just pray that you would speak to us through, the, through your word and that um, as we see Jesus' words here transforming the world, bringing healing, uh, deliverance, even his words feeding people. Uh, I just pray, God, that your words would have that effect on us as we consider it today and throughout this week. So we just pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my kids, when they're little, just like you girls, um, when they come up to me and they hug me and they say, Daddy, I love you. It just melts your heart, right? It melts your heart, can change your day. It's, it's, it's wonderful, right? Um, your, your kids' words have power, right? They have power. They also have power when you read their angry rant about you in their diary. That can crush you, give you anxiety, leave you sleepless, and change your day too, right? or whatever other version of that that you might get, right? Um, words have power. They matter. They affect the world. They affect, they affect our heart. They direct our lives. But they have limited power. They have very limited power. We really feel this. We really feel the limitation of the power of our words when someone's sitting in front of us in deep pain. And you realize there's nothing I can say right now that's going to make this better. There's nothing I can say right now that's going to help this person, right? You feel, you can, you know your words have power, but you know they are severely limited in their power. Yet what we find in our text today is that God's word um, do not just have power. They have ultimate power, and his words are power manifest to bring about the change of the world. God's words create they destroy, they transform, they resurrect, they give life, they cure, they heal, they kill, they condemn, and they justify. God's words are powerful. That's why when you read Genesis 1 and it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. God's words are powerful. This passage then, as we read here in Mark chapter 7, focuses in and helps us to see that God's words Jesus' words are powerful. They're about Jesus' words due to what we learned from last week in 7, 14 to 23. So uh, last week, um, for those of you who you were here, no, none of us were here last week to, yeah, so none of us heard Josh's sermon. I read it, and it was awesome, and I heard uh, good reports about it. But in 7, 7, 14 to 23, especially for those of you who didn't hear it, give a quick summary. 
the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are upset at Jesus because he is um, not washing his hands before he eats, and his disciples aren't doing it. It was customary in Jewish tradition uh, that they would wash their hands. It was part of a purity ritual, and they based it on a Bible verse, but it was not what the Bible verse commanded. The Bible verse was given to priests before they enter in and do their do, do their priestly duties as a sort of ritual washing. But they took that and they said, well, the best way we can promote purity and holiness in our culture is to have our people wash their hands every time they eat. And so they accused Jesus of being unclean. They say, you're not clean. You're not following the law. You're not following the rules. And you're, not unclean, and you're, you're unclean. And so Jesus tell, gives them a lesson on what is uncleanness. And what he says is, what you put into your mouth is not what makes you unclean, but what comes out of your mouth. That is what makes you unclean because purity is a matter of the heart. And what your mouth produces is what your heart feels and thinks and wants. And that, and that pours out of you. So what defiles you, what makes you impure, are your words not that come out of you, not the things external to you that, via, that make you dirty and clean on the you know. On the, on the outside. And in our culture, that's a really important thing because American culture, we tend to see all of our problems and all of the evil and all the filthiness outside of us. Different groups, different organizations, the Democrats or the Republicans, they're the impure. Whichever one we don't like or whatever other um, religions or whatever, they're all impure. And we need to stay away from them so we don't get impure. And what Jesus is saying here is that, your in your interface with the world, whatever it is, that's not that's not going to make you impure. Your own hearts do, and it's manifest in your words. And so this passage is all about how Jesus's words show that he has power and that he is pure, and we it, we see him demonstrate it for us. He reveals that what comes out of our mouths, our words, reveal what is in our heart, and we see and hear what's in the heart of Christ. What his words re reveal about him and what effects his words have on people. And what we see in this text then, in chapter 7, is that Jesus' words deliver, heal, and feed. And so we're going to look at each of those, each of those things in a text. Jesus' words deliver, heal, and feed. We see that Jesus' words make everything better. Jesus' words make everything better. Better. If my child's I love you change, can change my day, Jesus' pure heart delivers speech that changes not just our day, but our everything, right? His words hold together the fabric of the cosmos and can recreate, renew it. His words make everything better. So, first then, we see uh, that Jesus' words deliver. We see, um, and we're, we're going to break this up in, into those three sections. So the first one is, is that Jesus' words deliver the unclean by words. He delivers the unclean by words in verses 24 to 30. So in verses 24 to 30, we have this Syrophoenician woman, big long name of a woman, um, and uh, she is coming to Jesus. So let's, let's understand what's, what's happening here. Verse 24, we see that Jesus rolls into Tyre and Sidon. Okay, Now, Geography is not everybody's favorite thing, especially when you come to the Bible, because these are really old historic places. But this is really important. Mark puts this here. In fact, he emphasizes 
the ethnic and regional um, identity of not only the city, but even of the woman here in a very emphatic way. And, he, and there's a reason for it. And that is because this is a Gentile woman. This is a Gentile woman in a Gentile city among the unclean people. So now the, the Pharisees are saying Jesus is unclean. So Jesus says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to immerse myself in it. I'm, I'm going to jump into the dirtiest pool there is in the Jewish mind. I'm going to go among the Gentiles. He goes in, and not only that, look at verse 24 again. It, said, it doesn't just say that he went into the city. The second half of the verse, he entered a house. Jesus went into the home. He didn't just enter into their city. He entered into their most intimate place. He entered into their home. He went into the nucleus of uncleanness, right? The very center of uncleanness, the most unclean space. No Jewish person was supposed to go into a Gentile home. None. Especially a religious leader that was taking the law seriously in the, in the mind of the uh, Jewish leaders in that day. And then verse 26 makes it even more clear. Just read Verse 26, um, you, you've probably seen this. Um, um, this is kind of a silly illustration, but it's like somebody um, emphasizing the fact that they have a black friend. Oh, this is my, my friend's African-American. Yeah, this is my black friend. This is Stephen. He's the black guy. You know, I don't know a Stephen that's black. But anyway, but that's, that's the kind of uncomfortable, like overemphasis on someone's ident racial identity that we sh should cringe at, right? <laughs> this, that's what's happening here. Mark is doing that for us because he wants us to make a point in verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. He's like saying, he's, he's just going to great lengths to show how Gentile this is. Super Gentile. Like the, the ultimate immersion into uncleanness. Okay. But it's even more than that. It's even more than that. As one commentator says it, Jesus goes into a region that for the Jewish people at this time, they were the mortal enemies of the Jews. These weren't just Gentiles. These were hostile Gentiles. These were Gentiles that uh, the Jews hated. They didn't, just, they didn't just look down upon them for being a Gentile. They hated them. They were enemies of these folks. They were disgusted by these people. And it was the, it was, in that day, these people were referred to as subhuman beings. And the most common words that in that culture that would be used to describe these people are dogs. That was the, it was like a racial slur that they used against these people. The Jewish people would call them dogs, that they're basically subhuman. And Jesus. He goes to their city, and he goes into their home. So Jesus has put himself in front of uncleanness. Now what is going to happen? Now, <laughs> verses 26 to 29 get really uncomfortable. Because this conversation, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough conversation. It's a very tough conversation. So we're going we're gonna to try to deal with it relatively quickly, but it, it's, it, it's a tough one. So verse 25 Jesus, this woman comes to Jesus. She lays herself down at her feet 
at his feet in desperation. This, this move of humility, she comes before him and she's just like, Jesus, I need your help. My daughter has a demon. Will you please deliver her? Will, will, you, will, you, uh, will you help? Uh, this woman knew that Jesus had done it before. His, his reputation had preceded him. Uh, Jesus, you know, every town he goes into, there's all kinds of people that they've heard the reports. They may have even been present and seen some of Jesus' miracles. So his reputation has gone before him, and this woman knows it, and she knows that he is the source of her help and the source of her hope. And so she comes to him begging for help. And look at Jesus' response then in verse 27. You think Jesus would be like, Oh yes, daughter. Let me let me let me heal your poor daughter. Jesus basically says no in what looks like the meanest way possible. He basically says no in a way that appears to be like the most offensive kind of no he could have given. He says there in verse uh, in verse twenty seven. Let me find it here. He says, "Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words, my healing, it's for the children of God, for the people of Israel. It's not for you lowly, unclean dogs. Right? Like, <laughs> like what, is, what is that? How do we deal with that? What is going on here? What is going on with Jesus calling her a dog and basically refusing? Um, <clears throat> because of what happens in the rest of this text, and having read quite a bit on it, I do not believe that Jesus was calling her a dog and refusing because he didn't want to heal her daughter or because he actually thought she was a dog. I don't think that that's what's happening here. I think Jesus was being ironic here, right? In fact, I titled this sermon. I don't ever talk about the titles for my sermon usually, but I titled this one. If you look on, um, if you look on Spotify, it'll be titled this way: "Kingdom Irony." This, the, this, all three of these scenes are just teeming with irony, like just teeming with it. Like Jesus is doing things that are just so ironic and so seemingly out of place and backwards throughout this text, and he's trying to make a point with it. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is making a point. I wish we could hear his tone in saying this, because I don't think it would be like, well, you know, miracles are for the children of God. They're not for the dogs, duh. I don't think that was his tone here. And, you know, you, you, we all know tone in text, especially in text messages, it's misinterpreted all the time when someone says okay or whatever. You can read that a million different ways in text. Or a non-response to a text that you can really read into that, right? So I think that we can tend to do that here. And I think what's happening, especially if we look at the text, is that Jesus probably said this sarcastically and maybe even playfully with this woman. And I think that I think that, and that's clear. I do this all the time. I do this all the time with my kids when they get into an argument or something, and they they would come to me when they were younger, especially. Um, I would come. They would come to me and they would say, "You know, Dad, what's uh, this going on?" And I would say, "Well, what is the most effective way to get what you want in life?" 
and they look at me annoyed and they'd say, threats of physical violence, right? Which is horrible. It's, it's an absolutely horrible thing to teach a child that threats of physical violence are the way to get what you want in life. And if it was in a courtroom and someone read it, like me saying, what's the, like, you got a bad read in court? Like, I would sound like a child abuser, right? <laughs> but the point of it is, is I'm being ironic and I'm, I'm trying to make a point to them that acting out in, in you know, rage or anger or frustration is, is not going to get you what you want in life. I'm saying it to make a point. And that's, I think, what is happening here. We can read this and you can even try reading it in different tones. You can almost see Jesus kind of cheekily saying, well, you know, let the children be fed first for it. It's not right to take children's bread and feed it to the dogs. You know, it's almost like, and so he's making a point with it. Um, He's taking and he's mocking the typical Jewish sense of superiority over the Gentile people to make a point. And what, he, what you see him doing in mocking this is his, he's showing that his kingdom is bigger than Israel. It's cosmic. His kingdom is big, bigger than Israel. There are no dogs in the kingdom. Instead, they're all made family and brought to the table. And what we find out is that this Gentile woman actually gets it. She gets the irony. She gets what Jesus is saying and doing here. And her daughter is indeed brought to the table and delivered of the demon. In verse 28, you would expect If Jesus was being serious here, you would expect the woman to be like, hold up, how dare you call me a dog, right? That's what you you would expect her to defend herself, right? How dare you dehumanize me? But she doesn't. She actually concedes the point. And I think it's a playful like, okay, well, I may be a dog, but even the dog you give the scraps to. We give Ruthie T-bones from our T-bones. Like you you can give me the scraps of, of the ministry there. So while she agrees with him, she challenges, though, his refusal by pointing out that even dogs get scraps and saying that she's not agreeing with him, that she's a dog. She's essentially matching his wit here. She's matching his wit. She gets what he is doing, and she's playing along. Now, in this, get the many levels of irony happening. It's not that just that Jesus is mocking the typical Jewish values of cleanliness and purity. He's mocking their sense of superiority over the Gentiles. And he's proving that this very Gentile and very unclean woman not only has more faith than the religious elite that he just got done debating, he proves that she has a greater understanding of the kingdom of God and the mission of the Messiah than they do. This Gentile, unclean woman, cut off from God, cut off from his law, has greater understanding of God and his kingdom than the religious elite do. The irony of it. Verse 29 is just as interesting. This woman's faith and humility move Jesus to heal the daughter. He sees her response and brings healing. The daughter is delivered of a demon. But notice, he doesn't command the demon to leave. He doesn't say, demon, leave the daughter. He doesn't go and touch her. He doesn't do any of that. It's effortless. As if he's so powerful that simply acknowledging the demon's presence in her daughter was enough power from a distance to cause the demon to flee by merely saying, her daughter is now free of the demon. Imagine that kind of power with your words. Simply acknowledging the existence of an issue resolves it. Right? 
crazy, right? What effortless power is on display here. He speaks and a demon in another location obeys and leaves her. And through the power of Jesus' word here, this unclean woman and her unclean demon-possessed daughter are made clean, delivered, and brought to the table as family. It's incredible what God, what Jesus' words are accomplishing here. Okay, the next one then, in verses 31 to 37, we see the unclean healed by Jesus' words. The unclean are healed by Jesus' words. In verse 31 to 37, we see again, in verse 31, Jesus is going to a primary Gentile region. So when you read verse 30, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Now, in this region, there were Jewish people who lived here, but this was a primarily uh, Gentile region around the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And so as Jesus goes into, he's into this new space, he is still in the midst of unclean people in a Gentile region. So he's not... He's not moved on from the unclean people. He is remaining, and he's doing more ministry among the unclean. And in verse 32, we find a deaf and mute man brought to Jesus for healing. So a deaf and mute man is brought to him for healing. In verse 33, we find a very bizarre and a very weird thing that Jesus does. Now, girls, listen to this. These folks, they bring to Jesus a guy who cannot hear, and he cannot speak. And Jesus, it says, puts his fingers in his ears, and then he does something even weird. And you, you can't, you don't see it in the English. They kind of toned it down. Jesus spits in his mouth. He spits in his mouth on his tongue. Jesus does this. Isn't that weird? Now it said, look at the way it says it. I mean, because it, it, you don't necessarily get that from the way the English is translated. It says in verse thirty-three, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. In the Greek, it literally says that he spit on his tongue. Okay, so he spits in his mouth. So Jesus does again. He's doing something provocative, right? He's doing something really weird. What what is this about? Now for us, that's weird. For them, this was not weird. This was actually, for, especially for the Gentiles in this region, this was actually normal. So what would happen is they had these magicians and these um, spiritual healers that would go around at this time, and how they performed miracles is they would spit on that part of the body that needed healing, and that was believed to bring healing to that part of the body. So literally, these people, he, Jesus was doing what they expected. Do you see a theme here? What's a Jewish man supposed to do when an unclean Gentile woman asks for healing? Call her a dog and tell her to go away. What's a Gentile healer supposed to do when someone comes up to you for healing? You spit on them and touch them and put on a show for the people. I'm way ahead of myself in my notes. <laughs> Why does Jesus do this? I believe he does this to subtly undermine the popular hucksters going around pretending to heal and do magic. And instead, he does the impossible here. He does the impossible yet again. Verse 34 and 35, it says he sighs. Look at that in verse 34. 
says he sighs, and looking up into heaven, he sighed. Now, who knows why he sighed? I, I think he sighed like, these people are crazy. Why are they spitting on people? Like, I, I think that that's, that's probably, I don't know, I, that's my guess. Who knows what that what that's about? But that would be like, why, why, sighing, right? Um, he spits in his mouth. He looks at someone spitting in their mouth and does the thing that, and instead of doing, instead of relying on that, he does the thing that actually brings healing. Because when he touched his ears, it didn't bring healing. When he touched his, when he spit in his tongue, it didn't bring healing. Instead, he sighs, and then he, in verse 34 and 35, looks to God in, in dependent faith and speaks the power of God over the man, and he is healed. Jesus speaks. He says that word that when we were reading, we said together, if fatha. He says that word, be opened, and all of a sudden, his ears are opened, and his tongue is released, and the man is, is speaking. He's speaking. No, here, Jesus doesn't command the man to hear. He doesn't command the man to speak. Notice his words here. He commands his ears to hear, which is odd, right? He commands his tongue to work. He doesn't just have words of power over demons and people. He has power over body parts, and they respond to him. Odd, right? Incredible, really. An incredible that he exposes the trickery of the magicians to be nothing in comparison to him here. As God bringing new life, order, healing, flourishing into the world through his kingdom, through his words. His words are bringing healing and flourishing into the world. And yet there lurks in this passage an even greater and deeper irony here. The unclean, dog, Gentile, mute, and deaf dude. Now, he's the one who has ears to hear. Right? What is Jesus saying all throughout the Scriptures in his parables? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? The unclean dude now has ears to hear. His ears responded to the words of God. And we know that he had ears to hear because of verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. They aren't saying he's unclean like the Pharisees did. Now the unclean dogs are saying he does all things well. And they go out preaching the gospel. Notice this. Jesus commands the dude's ears to be open and his tongue loosed, and they just immediately erupt in praise and, and hearing God and responding to God. And, but the one command that isn't followed in this, that Jesus ushers, is stay quiet about it. <laughs> in other words, um, the praise of God cannot be stopped when, when, it, when it's seen and when it's known and when people have ears to hear. These people go on, go on talking about the glory of Christ and all that he does to bring healing. So compare him then to the religious elite, criticizing Jesus, rejecting him, slandering him, and now this unclean Gentile man is establishing the kingdom of God. The deaf can hear as they do, speak from un and he can speak from an unclean heart. He can speak now from a clean heart about the kingdom of God, which is Jesus again bringing unclean people to the table. Through the power of Jesus' word, the clean, 
The unclean are made clean, and their words of praise proceed from their newly created and newly cleansed heart. And it's amazing to see that happen. So, not only moving on, we see not only that, but we see in chapter 8, in these first 10 verses, that Jesus now feeds people with his words. So he's healing people, or delivering people, healing people, and now feeding people with his words. Now, verses 1 to 10 should feel very familiar to you. This should feel very familiar. As we roll up into this scene, we're immediately struck by the amazing similarity we find between this passage and the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. So just just turn a page over. You can look there at the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus is out in the wilderness feeding 5,000 people. Remember, that was where they were trying to anoint him as king. And there was that whole circumstance in chapter 6. And some have been confused by this, thinking that that what we have here in chapter 8 is actually the same event told from a different vantage. Uh, But we know that's not the case because of what he says later in the chapter in verses 19 and 20. He's actually giving the disciples a hard time because uh, the disciples are still confused about him and about his power. And Jesus is like, you saw me do both of these things, the 5,000 and the 4,000. So Jesus is acknowledging that, that, that both of these events happened at separate times. And these are very different circumstances, very different experiences of miraculous feedings in the wilderness by Jesus. So as many similarities as there are here in this passage in verses 1 to 10 in chapter 8, uh, there are also very many dissimilarities. As this scene continues, the theme, <coughs> the themes of the passage of the other passages that we've already looked at. So again, in verse 8, he has not changed location. He is still in a Gentile region with a Gentile crowd. Okay? He is not before a Jewish audience wanting to make him king. Instead, here we have a Gentile audience that is oppressed, hungry, dejected, and desperate. A very, very different scene. Rather than going into a political rally, he's now in what looks more like, even though it's not technically like a refugee camp. A very different, very different scene. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says there that these people have been with him for three days and have had nothing to eat. The food has run out. They're hungry. They're desperate. It's typically understood that Jesus was likely teaching over these three days, showing the great difference between the Jewish audience and the Gentile one. One commentator noted this. He said, the crowd was so hungry for God's word from Jesus that they did not bother to worry about food. Right? They were feeding on his words. They had ears to hear. And compared to the Jewish crowd, not only were they primarily hungry to have, not only were the Jewish people primarily hungry to have him take political power, they even, as if you remember in chapter 6, they sat in formation displaying displaying their hunger for war in chapter 6. And notice here the intensity, though, also of these people's hunger. They weren't just hungry. They were extremely hungry. They were desperately hungry to the point where they couldn't get home unless they had food. Look there in verse 3. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way 
and some of them have come from very far away. Jesus is legitimately concerned for the well-being of these people. They, these people have listened to him for so long without food that they literally would not have the strength or energy to get back home. So just there's like I said, there's just so much irony in these passages. The unclean dog Gentiles are making Jesus' words their sustenance and are willing to put themselves in a situation where they could not eat for three days, while the Jewish audience want a political power and influence and wouldn't even wait one day for it. The Jewish experience was one day, and they wanted to crown him king. And yet these folks sat here listening, feeding on his word, to the point where they were so hungry they couldn't leave. But verse 2 says Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He feels bad. He wants to make sure that they're fed. He wants to care for them. And so he does. He cares for them. And what's, what's amazing in this is you, you see a very similar uh, miracle to what's happening out in the desolate wilderness that you find in chapter 6. It's crazy. The disciples, they, they note it in verse 4. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here? Where? In the desolate place. In the wilderness. How are you know, the place of, of, that's uninhabitable, how are we going to give them food to eat? Right? And the disciples, you know, they still haven't learned. It's not like they remembered back, you know, chapter 6, and they were like, oh yeah, God worked, Jesus worked this out before. They're still struggling, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But what's crazy here is that now even the desolate place becomes habitable for the unclean Gentiles. It's not just the Jewish people that are now experiencing the new creation work of Jesus and finding life and flourishing and nourishment, now also the dogs of society, the enemies. The Gentiles are experiencing nourishment, food, and sustenance in the desolate place. Um, and not only do we find a strange irony between the Gentile crowd and the Jewish crowd in verse 4, now we also find a strange irony between the disciples and the Gentile crowd. Look at this in verse 4. The guys who knew Jesus best and had a front row seat to the last miracle feeding, they're pictured as the ignorant ones here. They're pictured as the slow ones here. Well, where are we going to get bread? While the Gentile crowd is waiting patiently for Jesus to take care of them. It's a great irony here. How are we going to feed these people? They have thick skulls, like you and I do. It seems like when we're put in a tough spot, we forget everything God has done for us up to that point, and we throw our hands in the air in ignorance. How is He going to handle this? How is God going to help us through this? And it's funny because you'd think Jesus would be like, uh, can you just remember what happened in chapter 6? Right? He doesn't do that. The anxious disciples here are contrasted with the untrusting dog Gentiles waiting in faith on Jesus. And this is just you and me. This is us. When we encounter challenging circumstances in life, we are kind of like, well, God, what are you, how, how am I going to manage this? Right? And we forget all that God has done for us in the past. And this is why the book of Psalms is so helpful. When you read through the book of Psalms, it is amazing 
how many of those psalms are simply a recounting of the history of God's work in Israel. And it's because the people of Israel constantly forget all of the good things that God has done. And it's why when God would, when people would, God would do an amazing thing, he'd say, hey, stack up some rocks in this place so that you'll remember. Or do this or that in this place so that you'll remember what I did. Or he, hey, why not uh, practice Passover every year to remember what I did to deliver you from the Egyptians. God wants his people to remember what he has done so that they would learn to trust him going into the future here. And it seems like these Gentiles, they heard what Jesus had done and they were waiting comfortably for him to feed him. While the disciples, you, the guys you would think would be like, hold on crowd, Jesus has got this. Instead, they're the ones like, well, how are we going to do it? What's, what's, what, uh, we don't know what to do. We're worried. Right? Anyway. So we need to be reminded to allow that God's history of faithfulness should inform our faith and trust in him going into the future. But then there's something really cool happening here. Jesus, without delay, he performs another miracle, multiplying fishes and loaves. But the way he does it is so, the way he does it is different than in chapter 6. And I think this is really significant given the context of chapter 7. In verse 6 and 7, it's it's different than chapter 6. Chapter 6, Jesus just hands out the fish and bread to the disciples and then it just multiplies. Here, Jesus prays for each before he, he he blesses them before he sends them out to the people. Verse 6, he blesses the bread and sets it before the people. Verse 7, he blesses the fish and sets it before the people. And I think this is on purpose. Mark is on purpose showing us that it's Jesus' word that brings the power for the miracle to feed all these people. It's through his words that these people are being fed. Just as they fed on his words days before, now they are feeding by his word in the miracle of bringing the bread and the fish to them. The feeding of the 5,000 didn't show this as said, but the, and that is because that story had a political point that, w- that was trying to be made by Mark. And here the reason we are being shown this again is to show us that the, in the context of the unclean, it is God's word that brings cleansing, provision, and sustenance. The place of death becomes a place for life, even for the dogs. The emphasis on what Jesus says here is to make doubly clear that it is his word that has the power to usher in the kingdom of God and all of God's blessings. So um, just as we conclude, how, how long am I in here? Oh, good. I got a couple minutes before I close here. Just a couple implications of all this to help us make application of this text. So first, Jesus is a king with pure speech revealing his pure heart here. We, we've looked at 7 verses uh, 14 to 23, at least referenced it, but just read with me in verses 21 to 23 in chapter 7, where he says here, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, and he lists all these sins, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. In other words, those things don't make a person unclean. They're already unclean, and that's why they do those things, right? So 
But when we read that, what comes out of Jesus' mouth through these three scenes? What comes out of Jesus' mouth through these three scenes? Power to deliver from demonic oppression. Power to bring healing to the deaf and mute. Power to feed the hungry. Jesus' words reveal that his heart is for the life, for the joy, and for the flourishing of those in his kingdom. That's what we see being revealed here. The Jewish leaders earlier in chapter 7, they assume that Jesus is a man like them who needs cleansing. That's what they think, right? They need, he needs cleansing. But here, he shows them that he doesn't need cleansing. It's they who need cleansing, and only he can bring that cleansing through his divine speech that loves perfectly. And so the question for us is, do we feel like an unclean dog? Do you tend to feel that way? Do you tend to feel like you are outside of God's family, that you're a dog waiting underneath the table for a scrap? Right? You feel outside, unclean, unworthy, hungry, desperate? Know this, Christ has a word for you from God. In fact, we learn Jesus himself is the word from God. He is the power of God. He's God's word made flesh. And Jesus, as God's word, creates the world with speech. And now he's in the flesh bringing order, new creation, and life to people in the world, even in circumstances that are impossible, in desolate places, for dog people. And as the word of God, rather than coming into the world to condemn it through his speech, now his speech is being used through the the power of the blood on the cross that people would be made clean and not condemned. As the word of God, Jesus rising from the dead brings new life, transformation, and hope by his word. Right? So it's the word of Christ that brings hope and healing to people who feel condemned like a dog and outside. And today the living Christ stands before the throne of God even now. He's standing before God right now, the Father, using his words for you. Jesus is our advocate before the God, Father praying for us. Jesus is using these powerful words to save, serve, and love us. Showing the Father the blood He spilt for you. Sending the Spirit to empower you to be transformed into the people He created you to be. Christ's words in this passion and Christ's words to you and about you today reveal His heart for you as King. He is pure. And He makes you pure and righteous before God. Another implication of this is that Jesus' words expose. And man, I'm, the, the, the passages that Josh picked um, in our liturgy just work with this really well. Um, but I don't think he knew that this is where I was going. But anyway, in all three of these scenes, in all three of these scenes, we see Jesus' words exposing the hypocrisy and evil of, of, of hypocritical religious people of hypocritical religious leaders. The scene with the Gentile woman, we find Jesus using his words to expose the self-righteous hypocrisy of the Jewish culture and leaders who look down upon Gentiles as dogs. And yet it is these dogs who get, who, who get to the ground in dependence upon Jesus, humbly trusting him and humbling themselves before him as king. His words expose the fraudulent religious for what they are and expose the genuine godly and humble for who they are. His words with the blind man and mute uh, expose the hucksters and magicians for their fraudulent practices and expose that man uh, to be in the family of God. Jesus' words expose the hungry, 
crowd is hungry for him and his word, exposing the Jewish crowd and even the disciples themselves as hungering different things, as relying and trusting in different things. The purpose of Jesus exposing sin through his actions, notice here, was to bring life. That was the whole point of it. Jesus was exposing this to bring healing. He was exposing it to bring deliverance and redemption, not to condemn. When a doctor tells you that you have cancer, it's not because he wants to hurt you or consign you to death, but to help you get the chemo and the treatment that you need to overcome it. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's shining a light, exposing the hypocrisy and the fraud of 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 uh, pagan religion as well as even Jewish religious elite to show the true power of God. He's exposing it not so that we would fear and fear condemnation, but so that we would have hope. So this means that we don't have to fear our sin or our uncleanness being exposed. We don't have to fear it being exposed. We don't, don't even have to fear being called a dog. Notice that. The woman didn't have to fear that. Christ has so labored to destroy those realities, to love you and make you new, that they're not, you don't, we don't have to hide and we don't have to run from those things. And then last, uh, Jesus' words powerfully transform. Uh, his, his words do bring transformation. He transformed the little girl from being possessed to being free. He transformed the Gentile mother from a dog to a family member that sits at the table. Uh, he, transforms the, he transforms the kingdom in which that little girl lived. You know, uh, we see this in the book of Colossians where it says that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and evil under the rule of Satan into the kingdom of, of God's kingdom and his love and his life and his redemption in Christ. So we bring trans, there's transformation of kingdoms. There's transformation of experience from deaf and mute and unclean to a man whose heart is full of the love of God, hearing God and speaking uh, of the great things that God has done. We see his words transform the experience of the crowd. They were hungry, desperate, cut off from God and his people, and now they're fed and they're satisfied. Right? Jesus' words make everything better. That's what they do. Through them, he creates you, saves you, transforms you, and makes you family. He invites you into his presence to eat and delight in him, just as he did with that crowd. Our words do have power, but they don't do that. Boy, I wish they did, right? <laughs> Be in awe of the power of Christ and the evidence of his purity and holiness through them. And as you consider that, ask yourself a question. How should these things affect my relationship with the Bible, God's word? How should that affect our view and our posture and our um, interaction with the scripture. How how do, how does that how should that um, affect the frequency with which we engage His Word? We should allow the glory and beauty of what you see in Christ and His Word here to shape your life, and how often, how deep, and how seriously you engage His Word in the Bible. And we can delight in Jesus by delighting in and glutting upon his word and eating his word. So, that is Mark chapter 7 through 8.10. <laughs>